podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. and girls back and better than ever it's the two-footed podcast on monday the 27th of september we're brought to you by epilindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider that's a virtual privacy network which allows you to go online change your location access things like american netflix or anything else you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe libertyshield.com hardware and software packages a free 48-hour trial. Use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout at libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find either on their websites or by downloading the Etsy app onto your phone and searching EPL Index or Anfield Index. Right, folks, nine games over the weekend. Lots of drama, lots to talk about, so we're going to jump straight in. And we'll get started with Chelsea nil, Manchester City 1 at Stamford Bridge. A really, really disappointing performance from the home side. Five shots on, on goal in the whole game. None on target. Outplayed, outfought. Seemed to lack any real ambition in the game. Tuchel decided to go with a 3-5-2 rather than the 3-4-3 he has been playing. With Mason Mount injured, he brought in another midfielder. Went with Kante, Kovacic and Jorginho as a three. And it didn't really work. There wasn't enough space in midfield for all three to operate particularly well. And it really played into City's hands. We knew City would dominate the ball as they did 60% of the possession. 15 shots for City, four on target. A couple of big chances in the game. Jack Grealish, another poor performance from him, but he spurned a really good 1v1 opportunity. He did drag another very good save out of Mendy, coming in off the left, cutting onto his right-hand side, and firing a shot towards the bottom corner that Mendy did very, very well to push away. Laporte had a half chance for City. Gabby Jesus had an opportunity when he managed to beat the goalkeeper, but Thiago Silva cleared off the line. Gabby Jesus would get the only goal. A shot from distance that took a deflection and landed at his feet in the middle of the penalty box. Three defenders around him turned one way, then the other. Got his shot off really well. You have to give him credit here. He does really well, not just to kill the ball with his first touch, but then to shift it, get a little bit of space and get his shot away. It takes a deflection off Jorginho. That's what beats Mendy. 1-0 to City, and they had deserved it undoubtedly to that point. Chelsea did make more of a, an attempt to play some football off the, after that and did have the ball in the net, but Lukaku 
Uh, Lukaku's goal was pulled back because Kai Havertz had been offside in the build-up to it. Chelsea struggled to really impose themselves. They just seemed flat. Didn't think a number of their players had particularly good games. Kante looked well off the pace in midfield. Um, Rhys James obviously had to go off quite early and Thiago Silva came on for him. That seemed to affect their thrust, their ability to break from the back, spread the field, because Aspilicueta went to right wing back. And look, we know he's a very, very good defender, but going forward, while a good crosser, he's not got the pace, he's not got the invention to really offer what you need. City played well. It must be said they did play well. I thought Foden caused City, uh, caused Chelsea a lot of problems with his movement. Jesus played quite well. Bernardo Silva was the standout player, though. What a performance from Bernardo Silva. He was absolutely everywhere. Defensively, he did everything you'd want from him. And on the ball, he was always looking to create. He was drifting past players with absolute ease. It staggers me that City were willing to let him leave in the summer because he is, he's not world-class, but he's the next level below. He's a sensational football player. And I really like the look of that midfield with him, De Bruyne and, and Rodri. Now, De Bruyne clearly isn't 100% fit. And without Gundogan at the moment, they don't have great options there. So they kind of have to go with what they have. But Bernardo is showing the form he showed in the 18-19 season when he was key to their title win. A little bit disappointing to see Raheem Sterling start on the bench again. Um, this is another big game where he's been left out of the team. And I don't think that's going to sit too well with him. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to hear rumblings that he is considering his future. Uh Interesting, America Laporte, Rodri and John Stones all expected to miss this game, yet all fully fit and ready to go. Obviously, they must have had a visit from that Spanish doctor. Um, but a good win for City, a very important win for City. Had they lost here and lost to Liverpool next weekend, they could have found themselves cut adrift from Liverpool and Chelsea. But by getting this win, they put themselves right back up to the top of the table they currently sit second, uh, 13 points from their six games. And like I said, they've got Liverpool next. So that'll be a huge test of them. For Chelsea, they go to Brentford next. They're going to find that difficult, far more difficult than they would have thought on Friday. They're going to have to improve. They're going to have to find ways to become more attacking while maintaining that defensive base. Defensively, they did very well. They did limit City to, you know, largely half chances. The Jesus one, you could say, is a big chance, but there's two defenders on the line, the goalkeeper flying out at him. A big goalkeeper as well. The Grealish 1v1 is probably the only real big chance there was for City in the game. The, Like I said, the Laporte one is a half chance at best, while your XG models might give it a high probability. You have to, fo to factor in, he sees the ball late, he's at full stretch, and the ball is travelling at a good clip. So Chelsea defensively, what we expect. But going forward, we need to see so much more. They've got so much attacking talent there. And I was a bit disappointed with Thomas Tuchel in the fact that he didn't bring on Callum Hudson-Odoi. He didn't bring on Hakim Ziyech. Brought on Ruben Loftus-Cheek. 
He's a good player, but he had a bad season last year. He hasn't played a game for Chelsea in a couple of years at this point. And I thought with Hudson-Odoi there and with Zayic, there was an opportunity to bring on another attacker. He did bring on Kai Havertz, but Kai didn't have much of an impact on the game at all. Um, so, yeah, like I say, big, big win for City. Disappointing for Chelsea, but you'd expect them to bounce back. They will be in the mix at the end of the season. I still have them as my favourites to win the title. I don't think this game changes that. You're going to lose to City, to Liverpool. You're going to beat City and Liverpool. Those are the games that you know, you kind of factor in a win or a draw here or there. It's what you do against the rest. And I think they will flat track bully most of, the, of this league. Uh, at the same time as City were winning in London, Manchester United were losing at home. Aston Villa won Manchester United nil at Old Trafford. And no less than Villa deserved. It can't be debated that they deserve this win. United started really slowly. Ollie Watkins had a great opportunity. Matt Target, how he misses after Matty Cash puts it on a plate for him, I don't know. United had a couple of good opportunities, and Paul Pogba definitely should have scored. Um, we had the Maguire header. Emmy Martinez made a very good save from that one. De Gea made a couple of good saves down the other end. It was a fairly tight game, but Villa had the better chances, the clearer chances. Harry Maguire, how he got away with the foul on John McGinn on halfway, I don't know. There's an argument that that's a red card. If that's given, that's a red card. McGinn is past him, and Maguire bundles him to the ground, and nothing is given. And that, to me, was a disgraceful decision by both the referee and the linesman. Courtney Hauser would make it 1-0 on 88. Very, very good header. Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer would cry about Ollie Watkins interfering with De Gea. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. He wasn't saving that regardless. Villa won up. Well-deserved. United go down the field. It's a cross from Fernandez. It bounces awkwardly. And Courtney Hauser... His hand is out. It hits his hand. It's a clear penalty. There can be no doubt about it. Villa were complaining, but there's no doubt it's a penalty. What we saw next from Emmy Martinez uh, may well just get him in my team of the season for now uh, without having to play the rest of the season. Cristiano clearly wanted to take the penalty and was stood behind Bruno talking. And Martinez was pointing at him. And saying to Fernandez, let him take it, let him take it, let him take it. And Bruno, who's normally money from the penalty spot, he'd scored 26 of 27 going into this. And the only one he missed was a good save. He steps up and he doesn't just miss, but he blazes that ball so far over the bar that I'm not sure what was going through his mind. Now, what I will point out is both of the penalties he's missed. So he's missed two of 28. And both of the penalties he's missed are the two penalties where he hasn't done his trademark hop, skip and a jump and then pass it into the corner of the net. 
against New. I think it was Newcastle he missed the penalty the first time. He didn't do it. And in this one, he just steps up and wallops it. He's normally so calm in front of goal, from the spot especially. This was completely out of character. And not doing that normal approach to the penalty, you, you could tell as soon as he went to hit it, this is going way over. He looked too pent up. Now, this obviously led to, you know, some discussion afterwards, well, Cristiano should take them from now on. Bruno's a better penalty taker than Cristiano. That's not even up for debate. He's a much better penalty taker than Cristiano Ronaldo. But yeah, in all likelihood, they do now revert to, to Cristiano. Bruno released a, a statement after the game, I think on his Instagram account, um, apologising for the situation. Nonsense. What are you doing this for? You missed a penalty. It happens all the time. We will see 15 missed penalties across the season in the Premier League this year. You don't need to apologise for it. Not publicly anyway. You can apologise to your teammates, to the manager maybe, though Ollie deserves no apology. Ollie's tactical setup in this game, awful. Goes with McFred in midfield. They get outplayed by Douglas Louise, who had a field day. John McGinn, who just did whatever he wanted. And young Ramsey, who I was impressed with. Danny Ings and Watkins caused Varane and Maguire loads of trouble. Uh, Watkins, in particular, left Varane sitting on the ground at one point and drew a good save from De Gea. You did lose Luke Shaw early. You had to bring on Diogo Delot because Alex Tellez is injured. And maybe that threw your plan off. I don't know. But United come out of this game with an injury to Shaw and an injury to Maguire. And those will be of concern. Um, yet another game where Oli didn't bring on Jaden Sancho, didn't give Donny van de Beek a run out, didn't bring on uh, Jesse Ling Lingard, which left them all sitting on the bench. Especially van de Beek, who was excellent in the week for them against West Ham in the Cup. He was probably their best player in a very poor team performance. But this is a bad loss for United. Now, look, West Ham, Villa are a good team. There's no doubt Villa are a good team. But United should be winning this game at home with some of the injuries that Villa have. They're not at full strength. They're missing the likes of Leon Bailey, Emi Buendia. You know, they couldn't play Tunzebi because he's a United player. They're still learning how to play in this back three. They've still got Tyron Ming, so you still have a an outlet to get your goals. Um, and United were just very, very flat. Lots of speculative efforts. No real cohesion. You had Cristiano standing up front like a statue. And the thing is, he's been criticised for this performance. This is the exact same performance that he put in against Newcastle and against West Ham. It's just that he didn't get a goalkeeping error gifting him a goal in this game. Amy Martinez is not about gifting opportunities to people. He's about taking it away and snatching their soul while doing so. Martinez, what a player, what a buy he's been for Villa. And what a mistake by Arsenal. And we come to Arsenal and the, the, their goalkeeper did well this weekend. But Amy Martinez is a top three, top four goalkeeper in the league. And you gave him away while keeping Bernard Leno and then spending more money on a goalkeeper who's clearly inferior to him. Um, 
But for Villa, great win. They jump up the table into eighth position now. It's back-to-back wins for them as well for the first time this season. They've got Tottenham next, an out-of-sorts Tottenham. So they'll go to London, confident that they can get a result. For United, they've obviously got Champions League this week at home to Villarreal. Then they're they're home to an in-form Everton before the international break. I know Everton had a couple of bad results. They got badly beaten by the same Villa team um, and they went out of the cup. But other than that, their form has been quite good this year. You look at the league position and Everton are doing very nicely. So that's going to be a tough game for United. Oli is going to be facing, again, a better manager than he is in Rafa Benitez. And that could be problematic. And if there's no Harry Maguire for that game, I don't know if Calvert-Lewin will be fit, but if he is, he could have himself a bit of fun. Um, moving on then. Leicester 2, Burnley 0. Uh, Jamie Vardy had the ball, had, had a great opportunity early on. Very similar to a goal they scored a few weeks ago. Ball worked back to Thielemans and that clipped cross towards the back post area. Vardy coming in on the back, back stick behind the defence. But he makes a mess of it. He then put through his own net on 12 minutes. A corner for Burnley. Josh Brownhill takes it. Vardy at the front post. It's a little bit too high for him. He's stretching and he flicks it into his own net. Disappointing for Vardy. Obviously disappointing for Leicester. He would make amends though, scoring two really good goals. He scores on 37. His pace, his aggressiveness, always willing to make that run. Gets in, finishes really, really well. Uh, Maxwell Cornet on 40. A brilliant right-footed volley. His weaker foot, his first goal for the club in the Premier League. He's already starting to repay that club record fee. Really, really good strike. And then late on, Vardy on 85 makes it two. Leicester had really struggled to break down this Burnley team. Burnley looked far more resilient this week than they have in previous weeks, uh, which was good to see from their point of view. But Vardy gets through down the left. I'm not sure why Nick Pope comes that far out to meet him. Makes it very easy for Vardy to go round. But it's a very difficult finish. On his weaker foot, from an angle, has to judge it perfectly. And does 2-2. Chris Wood has a goal chalked off right on 90. He is inches offside. Inches offside. And inches away from giving Burnley what would have been a great win and a much a much wanted win, considering that they've struggled starting this season. But I do think Burnley will come away much happier from the game. I thought we, we saw a lot of good stuff from Burnley in this one, especially in that midfield with McNeil on the right, Cornet on the left, uh, Westwood and Brownhill in the middle. I thought it worked very well. I'd like to see Jay Rodriguez and Chris Wood play up front a bit more as the pair now Rodriguez was missing for this one. But I think if they get those two in with that midfield, that's probably their strongest group. Um, and like I said, they created some decent chances. They took two goals, almost won the game late on. Burnley will be happy with the result and it should give them confidence stepping forward. They get Norwich at home next. That's a must win. That's a six-pointer already at this point of the season. Neither team has won a game yet. But Burnley obviously have two points and they'll want to they'll want to 
extend their advantage over Norwich. Um, and they should do so. They should do so at home. You would expect them to do that. For Leicester, it hasn't been a good start. Two wins and a draw from six games. Poor in most of their performances. They get Legia Warsaw away in the Europa League on Thursday night. And then it's Palace away next Sunday. That won't be an easy game. Palace started the season quite impressively in terms of the style, the aggressiveness, how quick they are to transition. It hasn't been a good start for Brendan. He's going to need to turn things around because they backed him big time this summer. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to get a challenge in for top four. No guarantees that they would get top four, obviously. But I think the minimum expectation would be to challenge for it. And having thrown away fourth place finishes or, you know, third place finishes even in the last two seasons, I think the pressure will will, will come on Brendan Rodgers. I, I don't think he's going to be, you know, just allowed to float through the season and finish sixth or seventh and call it a success if they're 15 points off top four. Moving on, Norwich to uh, Everton to Norwich nil. A good win for Everton at home over a team that are struggling in Norwich. Andros Townsend made it 1-0 from the penalty spot on 29. No more than Everton had deserved. They were really good in that first half hour. All over Norwich, creating opportunities, pulling saves out of um, out of Tim Krul. Alan wins the penalty. It's sloppy and lazy by Ozan Kabak. It's a heavy touch from Alan. Quebec, there's no reason to make the challenge. He catches him just below the knee with a swinging leg. Like I said, lazy and sloppy. It shouldn't have happened. Andros Townsend steps up and scores. And at that point, it did look like Everton could wipe the floor with them here. It looked like Everton could run away with this game. But Norwich, to their credit, fought back and caused Everton some problems. I thought Timo Pukki and Josh Sargent... Up front, lots of graft, lots of effort. in r- Running the channels, running in behind, pulled the Everton defence all over the place at times. And Matthias Norman had a couple of good long-range shots, one of which pu- uh, pulled a good save out of the returning Jordan Pickford. But Norwich got tired in this game. And they made changes to go more attacking, bringing on Rashika and Solis and Giannolis at left-back. And the changes didn't work for them. They became a little bit too open. And Everton were able to carve them apart with a really nice quick counter-attack. Alan wins the ball, drives forward, plays it to Damari Gray. And Gray carries the ball and finds Abdullahi Dukure, who'd had a pretty quiet game to that point. But Dukure makes a good run, picks the ball up and finishes very, very well. Uh, no more than Everton deserved this win. Like I say, from, from 30 to probably 70, it was a close game. And both teams had opportunities, half chances at most. But Everton started well, finished well, almost scored a third. Ben Godfrey denied by a really good Tim Cruel save. You have to give credit to Rafa Benitez. Everton are fifth, 13 points from their six games. Four wins, one, one draw, one defeat. You know, they're playing well. This is this is what Rafa was brought in to do. Um, like I said, they have Manchester United next. I don't think this will be the traditional easy six points 
that United get across the season against Everton. I do think Benitez will go there with a game plan. I think he'll go there hoping for the for the win, but more than happy to take the draw. They'll set up the counter-attack. If they can have Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin back, I don't know what their injury status is. I, I tend to use Premier Injury Reports, uh, or PremierInjuries.com is the, the name of the website. tend to use them, but as things stand, it doesn't always be correct because clubs aren't giving accurate information. Uh, Richarlison appears to be out actually until after the international break. So that's a bit of a blow. Calvert-Lewin potentially could make that. Calvert-Lewin potentially could be back for, for United away. On the 16th of September, Rafa said he will not be available for two to three weeks. If it's three weeks, it will take us beyond that game. But if it's two weeks, he could be back in training this week and, and back ready to go against against United, who, like I said, Luke Shaw, potentially going to be out for a little while. Harry Maguire, potentially going to be out for a little while. That could be a big blow for United, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin would have a lot of fun going up against Rafa Varane. Um, for Norwich, they stay rooted to the bottom of the table. Six defeats in six games, only two goals scored, 16 conceded. Burnley away next, not ideal. But there's no easy points for them at this point. You know, Burnley, Brighton at home. Brighton could go top tonight. Chelsea away, Leeds at home, Brentford away. These are not easy games at all. It's it's already looking bad for Norwich. And I know that when I did my predictions for, you know, league table, I, I, I thought they'd stay up because I thought they'd have learned. I thought Farka would be a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more ruthless, maybe not as adventurous going forward. They haven't learned. They're still too open. And I I think we can start to to look at a return trip to the championship for Norwich because uh, early signs, obviously, not very promising in the next run of games. Not easy at all. Uh, last game before we go to break. West Ham 2, Leeds 1 at Ellen Road. And I, I think Leeds are really unfortunate in this one. They go 1-0 up on 19. Rafinha, really well worked by Rodrigo down the right. Good ball into the box. It's set up nicely for Rafinha, who just passes it into the bottom corner of the net. I thought Leeds had the better chances from there. But West Ham always looked dangerous and always looked threatening. Mikel Antonio had the joy I expected him to have against Liam Cooper and and Cresswell at centre-back. But... Going forward, Leeds did look really threatening. Rafinha and Dan James in the wide roles with Rodrigo dropping out into space and, and Matthias Klisch and Stuart Dallas making runs into the box was causing West Ham problems. They were struggling to pick players up. Glish should have, should have made it two. Again, good work from, from Rodrigo. Put him in a position where just put your foot through the ball. He tries to pass it into the bottom corner. If he puts his foot through the ball there, I think he makes it two. I think that's game over. West Ham fought back, though, and they get a very, very fortunate equalising goal. It's a, a cross shot by Jared Bowen that takes 
two deflections, not one, but two deflections. The first of which is taking it well away from goal, the second of which sends it into the net. Um, on the balance of play, you would argue West Ham maybe deserved a point, no doubt. They put in a good show, they'd had some opportunities, they were you know, they were ambitious in how they went forward, they were committing men to the attack. They did have a goal disallowed, Thomas Suchek, goal chalked off after Antonio's fist or forearm fought, caught the face of Melier when jumping for a ball, rightly ruled out. But um, I think the draw would have been the fair result, but Leeds just too open, just too open at the back. Declan Rice breaks down the right-hand side, finds Antonio with a really good ball. It's a heavy first touch, and what that heavy first touch does is it gives Cresswell a split-second decision to make of, can I get to that loose ball? The answer is no. He decides yes. Antonio beats him to it, knocks it into the space he's just vacated, runs on and scores. And credit to West Ham, credit to Antonio. They kept going right to the end. They didn't just settle for the draw. They didn't give up. But Leeds are very, very unfortunate not to get a point here. I, I think a draw would have been the fair and correct result in this one. So for Leeds, they're 18th in the league. Three points from their six games. Yet to win a game. One of five teams yet to win a game, along with Norwich, Burnley, Newcastle and Southampton. Bad defensive record, third, uh, joint second worst in the league, not scoring enough goals, and obviously Bamford out at the moment, which really does limit them up front because Rodri uh, Rodrigo's a good player. He's just not really a number nine. Uh, Bamford, they hope, will be back next weekend, and if he's not, then it could be another bad weekend for them. Uh, coming up next for Leeds is Watford at home. It's a winnable game. But Watford are in decent form and Watford look like a team playing with a lot of confidence. So it won't be easy for them. For West Ham, 7th in the league, 11 points. They'll be very, very happy with how things have gone so far. Only the one defeat and they were very, very unlucky in that defeat. Denied a clear penalty and then a foolish decision to bring on Mark Noble to take a last-minute spot kick. Um... They play Rapid Vienna in the week. And then Brentford next weekend? I thought Chelsea had Brentford next weekend. Hang on. I thought Chelsea had Brentford next weekend. No. Oh, they have Brentford after the international break. Chelsea have Southampton next weekend, which makes things even easier for them because Southampton are not very good. Um, West Ham-Brentford is a, will be a good game. That's actually one now I'm looking forward to. It'll be at the London Stadium on the Sunday at 2pm. That's a game to look forward to. It's a winnable game, obviously, for West Ham, but Brentford have been very, very impressive since coming up, so won't be easy. But they're where they want to be. They're in the mix for European spots, playing well, playing good attacking football. They've got good options now in pretty much every area of the field. They don't have great depth in terms of volume of players, but they do have some quality depth everywhere except up front. But they've got options up front that they can can use, Yarmolenko, Bowen, etc. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll go through the last five 
sorry, the, the other four games for the weekend. Have a quick look at Palace. Laugh at Gareth Crooks, and we'll get out of here on that. See you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, we have done five, we have four left, and then we've got some bits and pieces to get through. So, Watford won, Newcastle won, and this may be the single best performance by Newcastle under Steve Bruce. Certainly the single best watchable performance, or single most watchable performance, I should say, under Steve Bruce. Alan St. Maximum in this game, playing as a false nine, absolutely sensational performance. I genuinely thought he was brilliant in this game. He was absolutely everywhere. He beat his man endlessly, created opportunities for everybody, could have scored himself, did score himself, no, he didn't. He set long staff for the goal. Um, but he was just, he was magnificent in this game. Absolutely magnificent. And Newcastle were very, very good. They played a 4-1-4-1, which is a little bit more attacking than what we've previously seen. They got Almiron, Jolington, uh, Almiron and Jolington in the wide areas. Willock playing in a central area alongside Longstaff with Hayden sweeping behind them. Good to see Longstaff back in the team. And he, early on, a couple of good shots. Then he put them 1-0 up. Um, St. Maxim made the goal for him. Really good shot. You'd, you'd maybe question whether Ben Foster could do better. He gets a hand to it. But he gets a hand to it in a way where he's trying to push it away. And maybe if he just worries about getting his hand behind the ball, he can stop it. But Almiron had a good chance. Jolington had a good chance. Willock had a good chance. Longstaff had a great chance after St. Maximum went through 1v1 after a sloppy back pass and fed him. It was kind of a half-bouncing, half-volley type of effort. And he made an absolute hames with the Longstaff and put it over the bar. Uh, late on, Jacob Murphy sent through 1v1 by St. Maximum, who just dropping off, playing balls around the corner sensational performance he may well have found his role the the move for newcastle now might well be go 4-3-3 or you know until Wil wilson's back obviously go 4-3-3 and try and put whoever your most likely goal scorers are either side of him but murphy makes a mess an absolute dog's dinner of, of going through 1v1 tries to lift the ball over foster just doesn't get any purchase in the ball at all uh, Ishmael Asar had equalised for Watford. And Watford had their moments in the game. It's not like they were completely dominated. But they Newcastle should have won this game. Newcastle deserved to win this game. 3-1 would have been a fair reflection of what we saw in the game. Sar with a very good header. Nicely worked corner. All that. Really good. But how Newcastle didn't win this game, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. They created so many good chances. Now, Ben Foster, to his credit, made a couple of great saves. Carl Darlow, to his credit, made two very good saves early on that if, if one of them had gone in, it was like within the first 10 minutes, maybe at that point Watford would have swept, swept Newcastle away. 
so that was kind of a springboard for the tune, but I really don't know how they didn't win this game. I genuinely don't know. It was the best Newcastle performance of the season and the most watchable without doubt under Bruce. Really disappointing for them not to get three points. They stay in 17th. Uh, like Leeds, they have um, three draws, three defeats, 14 goals conceded. They've scored one more than Leeds, but they haven't been particularly good apart from this game. Uh, they go to Wolves next, and that won't be an easy game. Wolves obviously picked up a win at the weekend. So, hard for the turn. Promising for them in that you could see signs of something good, but when you can't win games, you're not going to go far in this league. Watford are 12th. Their first draw of the season, they have seven points. As I mentioned earlier, they go to Leeds next in what should be a decent game of football. Um, the final game of Saturday was the most mental game of Saturday. Brentford 3, Liverpool 3. Either side could have won this game. Both sides arguably spurned good opportunities to win this game. But I think a draw was probably a fair result. If you were to say one team deserved it more than the other, I think you would say that Brentford deserved to win the game more than Liverpool. Brentford were the underdogs. Brentford don't have the calibre of player Liverpool do, but Brentford outfought them in midfield, outran them, created great chances. Mbwomo missed a good chance. Onyeka missed a good chance. Tony missed a good chance. Now, admittedly, Salah missed a couple of good chances for Liverpool, but... Jota, Salah and Mane really didn't get a whole lot of luck against that back line who played very, very well. The Brentford midfield was excellent and up front, and we'll talk about them. They, they were very, very good. Uh, Ethan Pinnock had made it 1-0 on 27. That was after both sides had chances cleared off the line. But Brentford were the better team in the early going and deserved their goal. A nicely worked set piece. Curtis Jones asleep. Allows Sergi Canos to run off him. Nobody goes to meet him. Plays the ball across. Tony makes a good front post run. Gets in front of Joel Matic. A Joel Matic brother. Uh, nice flick between the legs. Sends it to Pinnock at the back post. Fabinho caught sleeping. And Pinnock scores. Four minutes later, Liverpool are, are level. Now, Pinnock gets hurt scoring his goal. Either in the act of scoring or in the celebration. But immediately afterwards, he's clearly struggling and feeling his hip. He goes to try and intercept a pass to Salah, can't reach it because he's struggling, then can't get back into position. Ball finds its way to, to Jordan Henderson, who puts a cross into the box, and it's a great header from Diogo Jota. Good cross, great header. You could argue Liverpool deserved to be level, but I still think at that point Brentford had been the better team. But that goal had an element of luck to it, Liverpool second, again, little element of luck in that it was initially ruled offside, but VAR, thankfully, and this is where VAR is good, and this is why fans who moan about VAR have to look at the flip side. This goal was initially ruled out. It's a brilliant Fabinho pass and a really good Mo Salah finish, but it's ruled out for offside, and VAR, a quick look. Cian uh, Massey, who's the best um, referee's assistant in the game, is one of the VARs for this game, she judges it to be onside. It is onside, and the goal is given. Liverpool go 2-1 up. And you think at that point, Liverpool will see this out now. 
Brentford have had their go, but they'll run out of steam. And that looked like for a few minutes they might run out of steam. Liverpool dominated the game for the first 15 minutes of the second half. And then... And then Jordan Henderson decided that he wasn't playing on the right side of a midfield three, that he was, in fact, playing as a centre-forward and wandered out of position as David Rea cleared the ball from the edge of his own box. Now, Henderson was 40 yards from the goalkeeper, so the excuses that were made that he was pressing the ball are nonsense. Uh, He was 30 yards out of position, and he left Trent Alexander-Arnold dealing with a 3v1 at the back post, and he left his direct man, who was Janelt, who played the left side of Brentford's midfield three and lined up directly with Henderson. He left him free in the box as well. Not one of the three, a fourth man in the box. All while Henderson is jogging back, getting bypassed by the referee. The ball comes across. Trent, to be fair, does really well to, to battle for the first ball. It drops. I think it's Janssen has the shot, hits the bar. It drops. Van Dijk has to turn and jump and doesn't get any purchase on his jump. And Janel beats him to the header and scores. And when you watch the goal, the goal back, the more you watch it back, the more egregious Jordan Henderson's positioning, lack of defensive effort, the more they get, the worse they get. It's it's appalling, appalling for somebody who has been lauded for years for mythical defensive work helping Trent, which has never been the case. Go and watch Liverpool play over the last few years and watch how many 2v1 situations Trent finds himself in. Go and watch goals conceded by Liverpool over the last four years and watch Jordan Henderson for each and every one of them. He's not to blame for every one of them, but just watch what he's doing and you will see what a high portion of goals, his lack of positional awareness his lack of defensive uh, nous and instincts, his lack of tactical discipline, his lack of tracking runners. Watch how many times that plays a factor in Liverpool conceding goals. Um, Liverpool would go 3-2 up four minutes later. A Curtis Jones shot from 22, 24 yards out. Takes deflection, which is what beats the goalkeeper. It may well have gone in any way. It's very well struck. But Liverpool are 3-2 ahead. And, and again, you think, right, they're not coming back again. They, they, they can't. They can't come back again. But they did come back again. And once again, Jordan Henderson tracking a, decides to track a runner who doesn't need to be tracked. Drags the shape of the team to the left. Ball played to the right. He's, first of all, out of position. He should be on the right of the midfield too. But he's freelancing again on the left-hand side of the midfield too. Makes a mess of things. Ball comes across. Again, Trent has left 2v1 at the back post. It's a bit of a scramble. And Johan, with the summer signing, just pops up, lifts the ball over Alison Becker. 3-3. And no less than they deserved. No less than Brentford deserved. Defensively good. Love the team spirit. Love how much encouragement there is between the players. Great to see. Goalkeeper made one absolutely sensational save from Diogo Jota. He's he's beaten by a Curtis Jones shot that takes a slight deflection onto the post. He's on the ground. And the ball rolls to Jota, who's about seven yards out. Jota makes great contact with the ball, but the keeper manages to throw himself up 
and get a firm hand on it and flick it away, it's 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 the save of the season. It's the save of the season. You're not going to see better. It's instinctive, but it's it's brilliant. Um, in midfield, like I said, they worked incredibly hard. The two wing backs provided width, provided energy, defended well, got forward well. The two boys up front. Brian Mbomo was very, very impressive. His movement, his dribbling ability, the positions he picks up, all very, very good. But Ivan Tony is the star. What a performance. What a sensational performance by Ivan Tony. I have, have not seen a centre forward trouble Virgil van Dijk and Joel Matip like that before. I haven't seen a centre forward play that well without scoring in a long time. He was great at everything. Aerially, he dominated Joel Matip. He won nine aerial duels in the game. He's 5'10". Liverpool centre-backs are 6'4 and 6'5". He didn't have as much luck against Van Dijk. He found himself through one-on-one late on and Van Dijk managed to get back and beat him, but he'd run off the back of Matip. He battered Matip for 90 minutes. Had his hand in the first goal, had a hand in the second goal, had a hand in the third goal. All by being a presence, making a nuisance of himself, competing for everything, endless work rate, running the channels, holding the ball up, bringing others into the play. Ivan Tony is a star in the making. Brentford have their next big sale right there. He is going to go for a record fee for that club. It would not surprise me if he's a £50 million player by the end of the season. This is not reactive. It's not based on one game. He's been really good so far this season. He was great last year in the Championship. He was great for two years before that in League One. Ivan Tony has been ascending. He continues to ascend, and he is going to get a move to a bigger club. And no disrespect to Brentford, but he is going to get a move. Now, it might be that he goes to a West Ham or he goes to a Leicester. But I could see him at Arsenal. I could see him at Spurs. I could see him at Liverpool. I could see him playing for Liverpool. I think that would be his dream move, obviously. He is a boyhood red. I could see him playing for Jurgen Klopp. He has everything Jurgen Klopp would want in a number nine. Keep an eye on Ivan Tony this season. When you, get, when you get the opportunity to watch Brentford, watch Brentford. They're a lot of fun. They're aggressive in how they press. They're aggressive in how they progress the ball. Very, very impressive performance. Everything about them. Thomas Frank doing a great job. Team has bought in. There's camaraderie. There's leadership. There's a great vibe with them. And they have a star in that boy up front. He is a star. So credit to them. Great results. They were thrilled by it. And they deserved it. Uh, Into Sunday then. Wolves won. Southampton nil at St. Mary's. I don't know how Southampton didn't get didn't get a win here. I really don't. Uh, they had more than enough opportunities to create something. They had the lion's share of the ball, the lion's share of the chances. But Wolves got one opportunity and they took it. It's a really good long ball by Jose Sa. You could argue Jimenez fouled Bednarak. There's a bit of wrestling, but it, I think it's from both sides. Jimenez just is really strong in the moment, gets the ball, beats Bednarak, beats Salisu, beats Bednarak again, and it's a great finish. And it's such a good goal, such a good moment for Raul Jimenez because he's been through a horrible time for 12 months. 
we thought his career could be over. They thought he could die. So, I mean, that tells you how far back he's come. Um, Really, really delighted for him. Absolutely thrilled for him. It's a tough defeat for Southampton to take because they were the better team on the day. There's no real doubt about that. Armstrong had a couple of good opportunities. I thought Elianessi caused uh, caused some problems for Wolves. I saw a lot of Southampton fans after the game criticising Ralph and James Ward-Prowse. And I found it a little bit strange. I think it's reactive to the result. Now, what I will say, I do believe Kyle Walker-Peters should be starting at right back with Perot at left back. At the moment, I just think Livermento's poor defensively. And when he is good going forward, I don't think it makes up for it. And when you have Elianessi in front of him, I don't think you need him to be as, as attack-minded. So I think that is something they will have to look at, Southampton. I like that we saw Bednarak and Salisu at centre-back. I think that's the pairing to go with. I'd like to see Redmond out of the team and Jennifer starting. But other than that, the midfield is fine. The front two is the front two. But I think if you get Walker-Peters in at right-back, Perot at left back and Genepo at left wing, or Genepo as, as his name actually is, I think you'll get a lot more. Now, you've also got Stuart Armstrong to come back at some point, and that's fine. But I'd like to see them be, be a little bit more flexible in the team selection. Um, for Wolves, though, it's a great win. It really is a great win. Second of the season, six points now. So, you know, moving in the right direction. They get Newcastle at home next. That's a game that they'll know they can win. It's an important game for both sides because you want to get as far away from what's going to be a relegation scrap this season as possible. And Wolves give themselves that opportunity. Southampton, unfortunately, didn't give themselves that opportunity. And they go to Chelsea next. Very, very tough game. You wouldn't really fancy them to get anything at Stamford Bridge, if we're being honest. Um final game then that was played Arsenal 3 Tottenham 1 for 40 minutes in this game it was the best football Arsenal have played probably in about 6 to 7 years yeah I would would say probably in 6 to 7 years they were exceptional Thomas Partey was a monster in midfield. Dominant. Great passing range. Physicality. Winning the ball whenever he wanted. Just taking it off Tottenham players. Granit Xhaka next to him put in a solid enough shift. Got injured, had to go off. But a solid shift from Xhaka. You don't expect much from from him. Anytime he's not doing anything stupid, it's a good outing for him. So this was a good outing for him. The three behind the striker, Saka, Odegaard and Smith-Rowe, were brilliant. Saka on the right, absolutely tormented Regulon. Smith-Rowe on the left was sensational. And Odegaard as the 10, dropping into midfield to, to offer as the extra man. Very, very clever player. Acted as a fulcrum for the team and made things work. Aubameyang led the line really well. But what was most impressive, especially in that early going, was the defensive line. Tommy Asu was brilliant throughout, as was Tierney. Ben White won his individual battles, and that's a really big thing for him, as did Gabriel. And the two boys at centre-back, 
their passing out of centre-back was exceptional. Ramsdale had some shaky passes, one of which actually led to a goal for Arsenal, largely because Spurs foolishly pressed the ball they couldn't win. But Ramsdale would come up big in this game for Arsenal. They went 1-0 up. Smith Rowe with the goal after great work by Saka. No less than they deserved. They'd been all over Spurs in the early going. Absolutely all over them. This didn't look like two teams playing the same sport. Aubameyang made it two on 27. A brilliant team goal. It's a poor pass from Ramsdale to Xhaka. But because Spurs pressed the ball, as Xhaka fed it to Tierney, I believe it was Tierney anyway. I think it was Tierney. Um, Spurs created a gap behind themselves and Arsenal just played into it. Ball found Aubameyang, who played it around the corner for Smith Rowe, who carried it 40 yards, drove into the box. Lovely, simple cutback. And Aubameyang finishes with a plum. And then Bakayo Saka takes advantage of a bit of a defensive mess and makes it three on 34 And Arsenal looked rampant. Arsenal looked like they could run away with this game. And Spurs looked like they weren't bothered. Harry Kane turned in a shameful performance up front. Looked like a fella who does not want to be at the club. And it's notable that Spurs' results have dipped since he's come back into the team, as has their level of performance, as has their level of effort. I'm really not sure how Eric Dyer maintains a place in a Premier League starting eleven, But so far under Nuno, he does. And he was dreadful in this game as well. You could go up and down the list for Spurs in this game, though. Tanganga wasn't good. Sanchez was all over the place. Dyer was awful. Regulon was poor. Ali couldn't get into the game. And Dabele couldn't get into the game. Heusberg found himself overrun. Lucas Moura was a non-factor bar one shot. Harry Kane was a disgrace. Youngman Son has been the only player I'd give any credit for because he kept trying. Now, I will say this. Arsenal were by far the better team. Arsenal deserved to win the game. However, they also got very, very lucky. Kane missed a sitter. Now, he may well have been offside, but he did miss a great chance. Arsenal should have been penalised with a penalty against them when Ben White fouled Youngman's son. It's an absolute stonewall penalty. I have no idea how it wasn't given. And then Aaron Ramsdale pulled off. He made a couple of good saves earlier, but he pulled off one of the best saves that you'll see all season. I don't think it's as good as the Rea one, but maybe some people will argue it is. It's a Lucas Moura shot that takes a big deflection and loops over him. And somehow he gets up and taps it onto the bar. It's a great save. But if the penalty is given and Ramsdale isn't Inspector Gadget Arms, that game easily ends 3-3. And that's a little bit concerning for Arsenal because you were by far the better team. And like I said, for 40 minutes, it's the best football we've seen since the last good years of Wenger. Certainly the best we've seen under Arteta, better than any of the drops we saw in the last year or two of Wenger and that Unai Emery season and a season and a half. Um, This was really good Arsenal. I think Tommy Asu looks a bargain. I love the fullbacks. Tommy Asu and Tierney, they look excellent. I have questions about the centre-back pairing because I don't think Ben White's a particularly good defender, but he played really well in this game and his passing from the back is, is undeniably good. Gabriel looks to business. Thomas Partey, we know, is a top-class player. He probably starts for every team in the league, bar City and maybe Chelsea. Um, 
if they can find an upgrade on Granit Xhaka, the starting 11 here is really, really good. Saka, Odegaard and Smith-Rowe, so much fun to watch. So much versatility and movement between them. And Aubameyang, if he's at his best, will score goals in this league. We know that. Arsenal have won three in a row. And from being bottom of the league three weeks ago, they're now 10th. Spurs, having been top of the league three weeks ago, are now 11th. Um, rather embarrassing for Spurs. Three games in a row, they've conceded three goals. They've got Christian Romero, who's top class, sitting on the bench. While Eric Dyer puts in performances like that. Nuno is going to find himself under pressure soon. And we'll talk about that more during the week, but things are not looking good for Nuno. He was brought in to play a better style of football than Mourinho. And in truth, it's much, much worse. It's much, much worse. We're talking about a team that are... 18th in goals scored, 20th in shots, 20th in chances from open play, 20th in big chances created, 20th in shot creating actions, 20th in distance covered, 19th in progressive carries, 20th in successful presses, and 19th in shots allowed. It's bad everywhere for Spurs right now, and it shouldn't be because the talent is there. But, like I say, things aren't going well. Arsenal... They've got Brighton next. That's a tough game. Brighton, like I said, could go top tonight. So um, that'll be a tough game for Arsenal next Saturday, the 5.30 kickoff. Should be an entertaining game, though. Tottenham, they will have Aston Villa pay them a visit after they play Mighty Moura in the Europa Conference League on Thursday. Not good for Spurs. They're going to need to turn this around. And they've got big questions to ask over Harry Kane. I, I plan to do more about them this week so uh yeah we'll we'll come back to them uh tonight crystal palace versus brighton it's a derby game it's a big rivalry palace are sixth sorry palace are 15th brighton are sixth brighton go top with a win here and how much would their fans love it if they went top with a win at the home of their biggest rivals A draw would be a very good result for Brighton as well, of course. It would keep them in right in that mix. That defeat keeps them in the mix as well. But, you know, a draw doesn't doesn't create any kind of gap between them, City, Chelsea, United and Everton, who have all got 13 points. They have 12. But the win will put them to 15 ahead of Liverpool on 14. For Palace, a win here can be big. A win can bring up the 12th in the league ahead of Watford, Leicester and Wolves. Should be a good game. It's one I'm definitely looking forward to. A um, couple of quick things then before we go. Let's take a look at how wrong Garth Crooks was this week. Um, right, in goal, he goes for Emmy Martinez. I don't really have an argument against this. I would say maybe Aaron Ramsdale slightly more deserving. But I don't really have a problem. But Martinez's best moment in the game wasn't a save, wasn't a goalkeeping action. It was getting inside Bruno Fernandez's head and then dancing in front of the Manchester United fans. 
That was top class. At the back, he's gone for Americ Laporte, Courtney Has, and Ruben Diaz. Right. Um, I don't really have an issue with Laporte and Diaz. They both played very well, but Chelsea didn't really attack. So I'm not really sure they're deserving of being in the team. He goes for Courtney Howes for scoring a goal. Ignores what he, he mentions that the penalty, he can gave away a penalty. He said it was harsh. But it wasn't harsh at all. It wasn't harsh even slightly. He's not my favourite referee. Nobody cares. Ezri Konza playing in the same game was better. Ben White and Gabrielle were better and more deserving. Now, he mentions for Ruben Diaz, the block on Mateo Kovacic said it all. The way Diaz flew across the penalty area at a crucial point in the game to block what looked like a certain goal was immense. Right. So I pointed this out on Twitter and all the City fans, they're the most fragile bunch in the in the league. All 40 of them that follow City started crying. Lots of tears. Desperation defending is never good defending. Ruben Diaz has to fly across and throw himself at the ball because he's initially out of position. Because he doesn't react when Laporte goes out with Lukaku. Diaz should immediately be moving across. He doesn't. He doesn't react until the ball breaks. So that's the first part. That's a positional error. It's desperation defending because he throws himself at the ball before Kovacic shoots. Now, first of all, it doesn't look a certain goal at all. Kovacic is outside the box. and You've got a very good goalkeeper who you would back to make a save from there. But... By committing to that, and this is something Diaz does all the time, is he goes full bore into things. Now, last week against Southampton, he fully committed to an attempted block, got sent for a newspaper, and if it wasn't for a dreadful refereeing decision, it would have cost his team a penalty and a red card for Kyle Walker. If Kovacic has just a slight bit of composure, he dummies the shot, cuts back to his left, Let's Diaz sail by and is in 1v1 for what would then look like a certain goal. Yes, it's a good block. No, it's not good defending. It's very, very haphazard, scatty defending. The type of thing we see Aaron Wan-Bissaka do all the time, and people are now realizing, well, maybe that's not that good. This is not good defending. This is desperation defending. So we know... Crooks doesn't watch games. We know he hasn't a breeze what he's talking about, but to, to highlight this is nonsense. To highlight Howes' header is nonsense. He, he wasn't one of the three best defenders in the league. And Laporte, I, he did well. He did well. I, I don't really have an issue with it. Into midfield, and here's where the problems arise. So he goes for Saka and Smith-Rowe as wing-backs, despite neither of them playing anything like wing-backs this weekend. Again, no issue. But here's the issue. First of all, he picks Abdoulaye Dukure because he scores the goal. 
The guy playing next to him, Alan, was by far the best player on the pitch. By far the best player on the pitch. So how can you pick him? To move on, right, before I get to the, the most egregious issue, for Emile Smith-Rowe, he, he writes three paragraphs. Nothing about Smith-Rowe's performance. Nothing. He spends two paragraphs on Harry Kane and then says, meanwhile, Arsenal have a 21-year-old in Smith-Rowe who was prepared to walk over broken glass to win this derby. He said in his post-match interview that it was the best day of his life. What, what about his performance? Tell us how he did, Gareth. Tell me how he played. Tell me what impressed you. Up front, he picked Mo Salah, Raul Jimenez and Mikel Antonio. Nonsense. Antonio played well. Jimenez played well. I don't really have an issue with them. And again, Salah played well. None of them were as good as Ivan Tony was this weekend. None of them. But Ivan Tony didn't score. And when Garth Crooks watched the highlights of the game, he didn't see what Ivan Tony did. Ivan Tony was, without doubt, the best forward player in the Premier League this weekend. He doesn't pick him. Absolute nonsense. Here's the biggest issue. Liverpool's draw at Brentford was an extraordinary game to watch. And yet I was struggling to find a player to select for my team. There's no struggle. The player is Ivan Tony. The fact that you claim that there was a struggle tells me you didn't watch the game. You watched the highlights. The match was littered with mistakes and moments of occasional brilliance. True. But Ivan Tony was brilliant throughout. I refuse to select defenders who concede three goals home or away and strikers who miss more chances than they score. Well, first of all, every striker misses more chances than they score. Every single striker misses more chances than they score. You should know, Garth, you were a striker who missed a lot of chances. Although I have made an exception for Salah. Right, so you weren't struggling to find a, pl a player because you were putting Salah in. So the first paragraph is nonsense. There was no struggle because Ivan Tony should have been in. It's nonsense because you were putting Salah in anyway. The refusal to select three defenders, a defender who can see three goals, I don't have a problem with that at all. Uh, but the strikers who miss more chances, again, it's nonsense. And again, you're putting Salah in. So what are you saying that for? Which leaves me with Jordan Henderson. Liverpool keep trying to write this lad off. But when the Merseysiders hit the buffers, and they did against Brentford, Henderson is the one player they can depend on to see them through the crisis. An exceptional professional. He was the worst player on the pitch. He was awful. For 95 minutes in this game, he was cataclysmically terrible. He played one good cross in the entire game to Diogo Jota when he got the ball in a ton of space and had a ton of time to pick up what he was going to do. That's it. In possession, he was poor. Out of possession, he was poor. Defensively, he was an absolute disgrace. An absolute... 
one of the laziest defensive performances you'll ever see. And that's not new for him. Garrett Crooks is a moron. An absolute moron. And this team is garbage. Utter garbage. Raw sewage smells less than this team. I'm going to wrap up with the gossip to make myself happy after that. Um, Aston Villa and England forward Ollie Watkins is on the list of options for Tottenham. This is from some random Spanish outlet who have appeared in the last year or so and always print garbage. Chelsea are preparing a £100 million bid from Matthias De Ligt. I doubt it. Chelsea faced competition from Juventus for AS Monaco and France midfielder Aurelien Chumeni. Um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. Uh, both clubs have definitely been linked, and Chelsea definitely uh, have interest. He's a very, very good player. Bayern Munich sporting director Halan, Hassan Salihamidzic has distanced the club from reports linking them with Antonio Rudiger. Probably because Rudiger doesn't get in their team and they have absolutely no need to buy him or sign him on a free. Tottenham had an agreement in place for Pau Torres in the summer, but he prepared to wait. He was prepared to wait for better options. So this is AS, one of the Real Madrid fanzines. Basically, it's a newspaper that well pretends to be newspaper. But yeah, the, the better option, of course, would be Real Madrid. Um, he, he did turn them down. There's no doubt. But you know, there's no re no reason to write about this now in September, other than to hype up Real Madrid. Manchester City are keen to sign Orby Leipzig's Christopher Nkunku. Um, this is from that same garbage Spanish outlet, uh, Fajes. I, I don't know. I don't even know how you pronounce that. But um, it, they're garbage. And this is basically reactive to him scoring a hat-trick against City in the Champions League. Manchester City uh, target Dusan Vlahovic is set to sign a new contract with Fiorentina. That's been ongoing for a while. Uh, Leicester have expressed interest in Lazio's Spanish midfielder, Luis Alberto. Again, same Spanish outlet, same garbage. Pep Guardiola has hailed Bernardo Silva after Saturday's win, but would not confirm whether he still wants to leave the club. It was Pep who said during the summer that they that he wanted to leave, so we'll wait and see. Um, Manchester United co-owner Joel Glazer has hinted the club will continue to spend big, saying there's always more work to do. Well, you might want to start with your manager, son. Uh, Juventus are considering a move for Axel Witzel in January. No, they're not. Um... Borussia Dortmund chief executive Hams Joachim Watzke says the lack of playing time afforded to Jadon Sancho at Manchester United hurts his soul. Don't worry, Jadon's getting well paid. Cristiano Ronaldo wants to retire at Manchester United. He then wants a coaching role at the club. This trash. Trash. That man is not settling down to live in Manchester when his playing career is over. I know he can't go to America for obvious reasons. But he's going to go back and live in Portugal, where the sun shines most of the year round, and he can lie out in his size medium T-shirt and his tidy whities and get his nice tan. He's not settling down in rainy Manchester. That is it. That is me for today. Apologies, the show is a little bit late coming out. That's my fault, not Guy's. But thank you too, Guy Drinkle. Thank you to you for listening, and I will see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye.
Podcast Network.